You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. This evening, we will be turning to Leviticus chapter 5. So I invite you to turn there. In the Pew Bibles, it is page 84. Leviticus, we're walking through it. We've gone through these first five sacrifices. It's all about approaching God and communing with God. Our sin has created a distance between us and God. And the question is, how do we overcome that distance? Or rightly stated, how has God overcome that distance to bring us to him? And these five sacrifices begin this wonderful book showing us different facets of the work of Christ and showing us how we have been brought back to our Father. We will be reading Leviticus 5, verse 14 through chapter 6, verse 7. And if you're reading in the ESV, you'll see there's three paragraphs in this section. So we'll be listening for three different things happening in our reading this evening. Three different issues being addressed. And the first one is this first paragraph, verses 14 through 16 talking about if someone misappropriates holy things. And again, we'll talk about all this later. But that's the issue number one. The second one is if someone sins, but he shall restore it in full, shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. We do come to the end of these five sacrifices of Leviticus. And just so you know, as we're looking ahead to the future, this is probably the the only time we'll have five sermons in a row of five consecutive passages through Leviticus. We'll hit highlights throughout moving on from here. But we've seen these five sacrifices right at the beginning of the book. And they all point us to Christ just in the same way. All of them pointed them by faith to God's salvation, his provided salvation through a sacrifice for all the Israelites and pointed them to this reality of forgiveness in the same way now it points us to Christ who has fulfilled all of these sacrifices. We saw the grain offering, which is a tribute of grain that you would bring to the temple, a tribute to a king, a tribute of thanksgiving, a tribute to the one who, to whom all honor is due. You give a portion of your harvest to the king. There was a peace offering that highlighted fellowship with God because you offered an animal, but you took the majority of it home and you brought brought it home and you had to eat it within a certain amount of time as a feast. You invite your family and your neighbors and this would be a wonderful feast to, to demonstrate the kind of fellowship that we have with God. And then there are three offerings for atonement for sin. Commentator Gordon Wenham says each one is a different picture or model to describe sin. We first saw the burnt offering. It was the very first offering that's described. And Wenham says this is a personal model. This offering demonstrates that man deserves to die for his sin. 
This is shown by a whole animal being burnt on the altar. All of it was burnt. Nothing was left. And it shows us that man must die for sin. The second offering for atonement was the purification offering, or as the ESV calls it, the sin offering that we saw last week. And this, as Wenham says, is a medical model. Sin pollutes and must be cleansed. And this is demonstrated by the emphasis on purification with blood, the sprinkling of blood in the holy place or on the, the uh, altar the bur- of burnt offering. And so blood was sprinkled, emphasizing the cleansing of sin. And then today we come to what the ESV calls the guilt offering. And Wenham says this provides a commercial model for sin. Sin is robbing God. And it's demonstrated here by the necessity of paying restitution, of paying a financial sum for the sin you have committed. So we've had the burnt offering, which is a personal model, the purification offering, which is a medical model, and this guilt offering is a commercial model. As we've done every time, let's talk about the name for a moment. Guilt offering is what the ESV translates it. Other translations might say trespass offering. But commentators and scholars today think the best way to talk about this is reparation offering. It's the reparation offering. Guilt offering doesn't really tell us a whole lot what's going on, comparing it and contrasting it to the other offerings. And so reparation tells us what's going on because the sacrifice is about repairing a harm that's been done. Maybe others would call it a restitution offering or a restoration offering, something to that effect. So let's look at these three different cases in which this reparation offering would be brought by an Israelite. They were mandatory in three different situations. And the first one was this. When one commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord. This is chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. When anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord. So we saw last time unintentional sins. What is meant by that? These are things done unknowingly, but more broadly, this does refer to things done even intentionally, but later there's remorse and there's true repentance for it, being convicted of your sin. And it talks about particular sins in any of the holy things. This is an interesting word. It's a reference to the sanctuary or the tabernacle. More specifically, though, it can refer to furniture of the tabernacle, or it can refer to things that are consecrated and separated or set apart for holy uses. And one of the most common things referred to as holy things is food, food dedicated to holy uses, sacrifices that are brought that became food for the priests. So there's a number of possible things going on here. Uh, The the scholars and commentators aren't 100% sure what's happening here. But the best guess is that there's something, some kind of robbery of holy things, of temple things, of temple food, or damage to temple property. But there's a robbery of God, probably most likely by robbing his priests. This could occur with vows. I vow I will do this and you end up not doing it, or some kind of promise. The food that you bring, maybe for a first fruits offering or a grain offering, some other offering. You say you're bringing it all, but you're really not. 
And this whole broad principle here is robbing God. Robbing God, not fulfilling an obligation, not fulfilling a a voluntary vow to God. And we see one of the greatest examples in scripture of this is Ananias and Sapphira. You remember in Acts 5, where they dedicated a portion of land to God, and they said, this is God's land, and whatever is sold for, we will give to God. We'll give to the church. And what did they do? They held some back. They sinned in the holy things. This was God's land. This was God's money. And they kept it for their own. They misused it and did not give all of the proceeds to him. You know the story. They bared their own iniquity for that. And they both were struck down. So this is the principle of robbing God, particularly holy things, things set apart for worship and for honoring God. And so when you realize you've done this, kind of sin, there is an offering to be made. And it was very simple, two steps. One is you make restitution. You pay back what you stole plus 20%, one fifth. And so there's restitution for what's been done. And then you bring a ram for a sacrifice. A ram was very costly. The ram is actually the most expensive sacrifice required for the common Israelite. And so this was a big deal. You had to bring a ram or its financial equivalent. It's probable for this one, but, like, but certain for the other ones, that you could simply pay the amount of a, the going rate of a ram to the temple. So bring the amount. You didn't have to bring a ram itself, but you had to pay that amount to the priests, to God, in addition to the restoration, the restitution, excuse me, of what you stole plus 20%. And then when you went through this process, and there's more details in chapter seven of what this would look like, but when you went through this process, then the priest would declare forgiveness. You're forgiven of your sin and praise God for that. So that's the first case when you you sin with regard to the holy things. The second one is uh, chapter five, verses 17 through 19. And And this one is if someone believes he has sinned, but doesn't know what the sin was. This is an interesting section. And it it helps us to to see that during this time of ancient Israel, people in Israel, but more broadly, were always concerned that they committed a sin that they didn't know. And maybe an Israelite began experiencing difficulties in life. Maybe this was sometimes interpreted as guilt. Maybe they were struck down with an illness, a sickness, or maybe loved ones died. Maybe they lost financial investments. And this could be, in, this could be uh, interpreted as bearing his iniquity, chapter 5, verse 17. This could be interpreted as guilt for sin, chapter 5, verse 19. And so people would go to seek forgiveness for a potential sin that they might have committed. And you think of Job and his friends. Right? They went to Job and they said, Job, you probably committed a sin. That's why you're experiencing this suffering. And so when people felt this way that they may have committed a sin, God provided a remedy for them. God provided the opportunity to come and to bring a sacrifice to the Lord, even if they didn't know what they had done. And so they would offer a ram or its financial uh, equivalent. So that's the second case. And then the third case is chapter six, verses one through seven. If someone swears by God's name, breaks an oath, and then harms somebody else. There's a number of examples given here, such as financial deception, keeping 
um, a, a deposit somebody's given to you, outright robbery or oppression of other people financially, primarily. If you sin in this way, swearing that what you've done is true and right, but still steal and lie anyways, you're guilty. And so you had to pay restitution, pay what you stole plus 20%, restore it in full, it is said, and then you present a ram or its equivalent at the temple. And then you are declared forgiven. So this whole process had to be gone through when you were convicted of your sin to be forgiven of it. Now there's a couple principles that we see here. And we see overarchingly, no one is able to pay his own debt that is sin and curse. Nobody is able and you need a substitute. And this fleshes out both as we consider the sin against God and sin against others in this text. Let's think about sin against God for a moment. The emphasis in all of this, this passage, in all three of these occasions, is that God's name is being violated, either with a breach of faith by sinning against any of the holy things of the Lord, or by sinning against others when you swear by God's name. This is called a breach of faith against the Lord. So the emphasis here is on God's name being violated, sinning against God. And the question is, does sinning against God cause him harm? You need to be careful here as we talk about this. One answer is no. God is infinite. God is holy. God is infinitely holy. God is infinitely glorious and perfect and righteous. And so there's nothing we can do to take away from it because if we could take away from it, he's no longer infinitely holy and perfect. So no, sinning against God cannot do harm to him because he is all sufficient in and of himself. And this is absolutely right and true. So no, we cannot harm God in any absolute sense, in any real sense when we sin against him. But some might answer yes to this question. Can we do any harm to God? In a sense, maybe we can. God is due all of our worship and honor. And any honor that goes anywhere else, in these cases, goes to myself when I sin against God and sin against my neighbor. I'm trying to take uh, the glory. And any sin like this is robbing God of what ought to be his. So we're not absolutely harming God in any real sense, but we're robbing God of what he deserves. He deserves praise. He deserves worship. He deserves our right living to his glory. And when we fail to do that, we're robbing God. So my sin doesn't take away from God's glory. It doesn't steal glory from him. But apart from reconciliation in Christ, it changes my position before God. I go from a position of peace with God to a position of judgment, a position of great debt to God. So I'm not stealing anything from God absolutely, but I do incur a debt when I sin. I do now owe him because he is due all glory. And this is the point the sacrifice makes. It's not that we steal actual value from God, but that your self-worship is robbing God of what is rightly due to him as Lord. And you can't go back and make it up. You can't go back in time and give God the glory and the praise that is due to him in that moment in time. And so it's amazing that God provides a way of forgiveness and a way of forgiving the debt that we have incurred. And there's no payment of money that will make things right from a outward position. 
There's no way we will ever pay back the debt that we owe. And that's why the ram has to be given. The ram is is symbolic for a greater price than anything we can value. The ram, of course, points us to Jesus Christ and the payment that he has made on our behalf. No ram can actually repay God for what he has done against him, but as the offerer would offer this ram or the financial equivalent, he was looking towards the one who could pay fully and finally and completely the debt that he had to repay. Jesus Christ is our ram and pays the moral debt that we owe. He is the restitution that makes the wrongs right. We truly cannot offer this on our own. We cannot begin to compensate God for stealing his glory, for robbing him. And so this ram points us to the necessity of Jesus Christ the necessity to look to him because he has said he will wipe away all of our debts. He will make us stand righteous before God. And so any and all our sins against God are forgiven by the ram, Jesus Christ. This also helps us understand sin against others. Sin against others. All sin against others fundamentally is sin against God. That's what David says in Psalm 51, he says, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Even though he sinned against Bathsheba, her husband, the nation, he sinned against lots of people, but he says, essentially, my sin is against you, God, because they bear your image. And anytime I sin against an image bearer, I'm sinning against the creator, the one whose image they bear. And so we see here when there's horizontal sin, even, that we ought to bring a ram. God ought to be, the debt is owed to God, even when there's sin against other human beings. A sin against other humans is a sin against the creator first and foremost. But there are important principles here we learn about what happens when we sin, say, horizontally against one another. And the key here is that restitution that is required The broader principle is this, when we sin against others, repentance includes making things right to the extent possible. Repentance includes making things right to the extent possible. For you and me, this means whenever we steal from somebody else, we pay it back. We pay it back as Zacchaeus did fourfold to demonstrate the the grief our grief, to demonstrate our conviction of sin, to say, you need this money more than I do. We sin against somebody by robbing from their good name. We must go publicly and declare that they do have a good name if uh, if we have sinned against them in that way. Whatever we have done to harm our brothers and sisters, we are called to make restitution to the extent possible. Now, in this life, much is not possible, to do, but to the extent that it is possible, we must do that. It's a part of repentance. This flows from a renewed heart that acknowledges and owns up to the sin that we have done. Matthew Henry says it this way, to repent is to undo what we have done amiss, which we, which we cannot be said to do till we restore that which has been got by it and make satisfaction for the wrong done. He says, repentance is undoing what we have done. And to undo it means we have to pay back everything we've stolen and more. 
And Zacchaeus is such a wonderful example of that, filled with joy. He received Jesus joyfully. And what does he do? He realizes I've sinned against people. I'm giving half of my money away to the poor. And everybody I've stolen from, I'm giving back fourfold. We ought to be zealous for repaying anybody that we steal from. This is right. This is good to demonstrate what Christ has done for us. And yes, while Christ is, Christ is our substitute, we still sin. And part of our being purged from sin is repentance and paying restitution. And gives us, again, this small glimpse into the debt to God that we owe and how we can never repay it. This reparation offering for the Israelites is a real grace to demonstrate that they they owe a huge debt because of their sin, and there's no way they can pay it back on their, themselves. But there is a way of forgiveness. There is a way of coming to God, a way God has provided to come to him, to trust ultimately in the final sacrifice that was to come. The, the principle of forgiveness here is made abundantly clear. It says it at the end, he shall be forgiven, shall be. Not maybe, but shall be absolutely forgiven of sin. When you look to this atoning sacrifice, this substitute. But it is nevertheless a heavy burden for the Old Testament worshiper. Every time you swear and do falsely, every time you swear and rob, you must then bring this massive gift of this ram to the sanctuary. You must make sure everything is done right. It's a heavy burden to do this over and over and over must be diligent in watching yourselves. And so we can rejoice. Not that we get to be less diligent in our sin, but we get to rejoice seeing all of our debt has been paid completely and finally. There's no more offering of rams. There's no more bringing money to God to that we might seek forgiveness. We have been forgiven. Jesus has done it for us and we cannot repay it. So this is a reminder for us to praise the God of grace, that we have a sacrifice. We have Jesus Christ, the ram who has paid every debt that we owe, every moral obligation we owe to God has been paid in whole. And so we can again today rejoice that we can look to him, rejoice that he has paid it all. And then now we can go this week and we can freely acknowledge our own sin, knowing the debt's been paid. But now as we acknowledge our sin, we can pay restitution. We can say, you know why I do this? Because my debt is far greater has been paid. Come rejoice with me, with this same Savior and look to him in faith. We can do this to our neighbors next door, our family, our friends. We can freely seek forgiveness because we have been forgiven a greater debt. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, what a great joy and privilege to know you, that we have had our debt completely canceled, that Jesus Christ has borne the punishment for our sin and paid every moral responsibility that is due for us. And we rejoice, O oh Father, May we grow in joy. May we grow in celebrating this reality and living in this reality that we do not bear the guilt of our sin. It has been borne by our Ram, Jesus Christ. 
In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.